Greetings in the Master's name. It's good to be here and continue to worship our Savior who was born, lived, died, risen, ascended, interceding for us. What a beautiful time of the year. I've always loved words. Uh, in school, my favorite subject was vocabulary. It was just so much fun to learn new words and meanings. And, and I've, I'm intrigued by people who can write and captivate you with words or someone who can get up in front of a crowd and captivate uh, an audience with words. And I was thinking uh, of all the compositions of words that are beautiful and captivating. I don't know if it's in the ones I'm getting ready to read to you, and I hadn't even planned to do this before I got to church this morning because this is not the message, but notice the beauty of this passage. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was Phineas, was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, David, in which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be taxed with, his, with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there and the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there was in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch o'er their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Can you find a more beautiful composition of words? anywhere in the English language. The question I have there in the last verse, glory to God in the highest and on the earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Are we experiencing that in our innermost being today? You know, peace doesn't come from outward circumstances. Goodwill towards men doesn't come from outward circumstances or events or happenings. It comes from having this babe who grew into manhood dwelling in our hearts and lives through the presence of the Spirit. Are we experiencing that in our lives today? I invite you to turn your Bibles to the third chapter of Romans. It's been about six weeks since we've looked at the book of Romans. If you're new here, uh, I'm preaching through the book of Romans because of a number of requests that came uh, over a period of time that for sermons that were covered in this book or in this, yeah, in this passage of Scripture, and I'm really enjoying studying the book of Romans. I can't say that I study in it every day, but at least multiple days a week, I'm in the book of Romans and studying and taking notes and trying to gather tidbits of, of input for throughout the whole book, not just the message I'm working on at a given time. And had a little bit of a, a terrorizing moment last week. I went to get the notebook out of my desk that I had all these notes on, and it was gone. And uh, here I had gotten barred to take coffee orders, so I retrieved it back, and I feel much better about having it back. But I've enjoyed the challenge of looking through the book of Romans, and I can tell you 
My appreciation for my salvation is growing. When we look at how lost we are outside of Jesus Christ, my appreciation for my salvation is I study, and, uh, and I'm enjoying it. Uh, it's very challenging, but I'm enjoying it very much. We began in chapter 1. We noticed that God calls His people. The cause of the call is Jesus Christ. The result of being together in Christ is koinonia, it's communion with God and other Christians. We are commissioned, we are, we are sent forth, we are constrained by the love of God, we're held in, and we're also compelled forwards by God's love, and we're a debtor to everyone. Every soul that you meet in life, we are indebted to share with them the love of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm a debtor to everyone I meet. And then we looked at the last half of chapter 1. We've seen the terrible cost of failing to recognize the sovereignty of God and being given over to a depraved mind. Chapter 2 opens up right on the end of the depravity of the human mind and challenges us, do not judge others. Because it was God's grace that led us to repentance out of a life of sin. And then the last half of chapter 2, we considered the fact that God is looking for obedience that comes from the circumcision of the heart. It's a life that is Holy Spirit-filled and led instead of a life that's attempting to keep the law and the efforts of the flesh apart from the indwelling presence of the power and the Spirit of God. The letter of the law versus the Spirit of the law. God is looking for us to serve Him because we love Him, not out of performance. God showed us that when we commit sins that we speak out against, we give the unbelievers occasion to blaspheme the name of God, and He taught us that we must be changed inwardly, and it must represent itself as we live it out outwardly. And that brings us now to chapter 3, uh, fifth message, chapter 3 of Romans, and the title is just Romans chapter 3. And he begins with a question. Apostle Paul asks a number of questions throughout this, this third chapter, and he gives answers. And one of the things we have to dig for here in the book of Romans, and also in his writing to the book to the believers at Corinth, is it's obvious there was dialogue. There were questions that had been uh, entertained, and there were statements that had been made. And Paul is, is addressing these, and he may be affirming, he may be refuting. And we kind of got to dig in and try to figure what was the question that was being asked. And obviously, well, the first question here is, well, you know, if, if circumcision is of no value anymore, was there even any value in being a child, the children of Israel? Was there any value of even being a Jew? And Paul jumps right in in and, and the first verse and says, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because that unto them there were committed the oracles of God. So, I'd ask us to entertain the same question. Is there an advantage to having a godly heritage? Is there an advantage to having a godly heritage? Many of us sitting here today have grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. We can go back and say they walked with God, and they, they laid a foundation for, for subsequent generations to, to understand what it meant to walk with God. It's amazing. I talked to different people. I asked somebody recently, I said, where'd your ancestors come from? And they laughed and said, New York. We don't know. Most people in society today don't have a, a, a heritage. They don't even know where their ancestors may have been from when they came to America or anything else like that. Is there an advantage to that? Absolutely there's an advantage to that. 
There's a profit for that. But look, going back now to the Jews, Paul says absolutely there's an advantage. He says there's much in every way, and he doesn't go into all those ways, but he said the chief reason that there's an advantage because unto you was committed the oracles of God or the word of God, the words of God. And we find that again referred to in Romans chapter 9 and verse 4. He says, Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? So he said, You have tremendous advantage. You have tremendous blessing. And we'll also talk about the responsibility that goes with that. The very words of God have been entrusted to you to have and to keep and to share and to take to the world. And then he answers another question, verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Obviously, there was just a lot of, of unrest and questions going around and says, well, if God, God gave us all this and God presented it to us, and does the fact that some responded in unbelief, does that make the oracles of God without effect? Does that... Uh, nullify God's faithfulness? Yeah, that's another way to say it. Does that, make, does that nullify God's faithfulness, the fact that not everybody responds and believes? He's saying, no, not at all. God forbid. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and thou mightest overcome when thou art judged. Verse 4. And what he's saying is, God is just, and we'll, we'll find that in the conclusion. God is just. He's the justifier. And God has the right to be who He is and to require us to be who He has created us to be. Um, a cross-reference here to this passage I've just looked at, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, mightest overcome when thou art judged, is Psalm 51.4, and we know that that is where David is writing in repentance after he had sinned with Bathsheba, uh, basically had set it up so Uriah was murdered, etc., etc. And David is repenting, and he said this, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Now notice the last half of that verse, 51.4, Psalms, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. So he's saying, God is just and right when he speaks. He's just and right when he judges. And when the people who have the oracles of the law choose to sin, and they give the enemies of God occasion to blaspheme as David said he had done, that does not nullify the righteousness or the justice of God. It affirms who he is because he doesn't change. He's sinless. It does not change his standard for righteousness. And then in verses 5 through 8, Paul refutes arguments that sinning so God's righteousness be seen more clearly is a very false approach. Verse 5, some are saying, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. How then shall God judge the world? For the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory. Why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Let me read this in the NIV. 
But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If it were that, if it were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enchances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we're being slanderous reported as saying, and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation or their damnation is deserved. So God is not unjust in dealing with sin. And to simply say, all right, if my sin brings the great contrast to light between righteousness and sinfulness, then let's just continue to sin so the righteousness of God will be more evident. That was the argument that it appears was being made. That's just sin. That just makes God's righteousness more evident. And he's saying, no, do not do that. And he was saying, as we are being slanderously reported and some affirm that we say. He said, some people were even saying that that's what we're preaching, that you can, you can sin and your sinfulness just makes the evidence of God's holiness and His faithfulness and His justice all the more evident. And then we come to uh, verse 9. What then are we better than they? No, and no wise. For we have proved both the Jews and Gentiles that they all are under sin. So he's saying you have to understand, Jewish people who's receiving this letter, that we're all alike. We all have the same fallen, sinful nature within us. Yes, you have the blessing of being the children of God. You have the, the Word of God or the oracles of God, as it says here in the King James. You have a lot of advantages in every way. But he's also saying, back in the verse we just looked at, and King James says, whose damnation is just, the NIV says their condemnation is deserved. He's saying if we take that viewpoint that we can just continue on in sin, the Jewish people had that problem with Jesus. He would speak to them, and they'd say, well, we're Abraham's seed. We don't need what you have to offer. We're justified in our minds by our heritage, by our lineage. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. But he's saying, if we reject that and we continue on in sin and say, let grace abound, I'm going to continue to sin, Paul said, our condemnation is deserved. Our eternal punishment will be deserved. So I'll come back to, to this to, to challenge us. Having a godly heritage does not give us a license to sin and still be right with God. Having a, having a godly heritage did not give the, the descendants of Abraham the right to sin and still feel they were just before God. They needed, they needed repentance. They needed faith in Jesus just as much as the Gentiles and anyone else. And we will look at that more in chapters 7 and 8. Uh, that's actually my two favorite chapters I'm studying. I've, every week I'm just tempted to go ahead and preach on 7 and 8, but uh, we're not. I'm hold back till we get to it because I feel like chapters 7 and 8 are really going to help us understand the rest of the book. But anyway, uh, so 
Having a godly heritage is a wonderful thing, dear people. Many of us do, but let's not rest in it. Let's understand that it simply makes us more accountable. It puts more weight on our shoulders. It gives us a greater responsibility to everyone we meet. We are, I believe that as Apostle Paul said in chapter 1, where he's, in a, he's a debtor to everyone he meets, Jew and Gentile alike. The more opportunity we have to know about God and the more opportunity we know of His will and His way, the more responsible we are to share it and to live it. No, live it and to share it. I had that backwards. Because the Scripture is clear, and we're going to get into this more in the next few verses, that if we aren't living it, we are a stench in the nostrils of God. Now, Verses 9 through 20, Paul addresses the second question. Does having a godly heritage, and I've already been addressing it, but he addresses it here. Does having a godly heritage make one better than others? And we find that there in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise. For we have proven both Jews and Gentiles were all under sin. All of us have the same curse upon our lives and our fallen human nature. No. Advantage, yes. Are we better? No. More accountable? Yes. We are all under sin because of the curse. And then the next eight verses, verses 10 through 18, are interesting. They are all quotations from the Old Testament. So verse 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, they are all quotations from the Old Testament, all from different verses. But we'll go through those and consider the message that we're getting through the Spirit of God, through the pen of Paul, as he talks about that. Verses 10 through 12 tells us, if you're taking notes, we are depraved in character. Verses 10, 11, and 12, we are depraved in character. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No, not one of us. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all going out of the way. They are all together became unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So we all have a depraved character outside of the presence of the Holy Spirit cleansing us. But we still have that within us until we die. That, that pull is going to be there. That, the, the sinful flesh Reminds me of a story. Someone was getting up to preach on a subject one time at the Brian Bible Conference, and before he got up to preach, someone said, somebody said, well, before you get up to preach, I want to know which side this issue you're on, see if you come out right. And he said, well, he said, it depends what part of me you're talking about. And they said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, my, my flesh is in favor of the sin that I'm going to preach about. But he said, my mind and the spirit dwelling within me are against it. So our flesh is always going to be pulling back. And as was talked about in our Sunday school, the less we feed the flesh and the more we feed the Spirit. And the less we feed the flesh and the more we follow the Spirit, the less pull the flesh will have in our lives. But verses 10 through 12 make it very clear that outside of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, we are depraved in character. All right. Verses 13 and 14, we are depraved in speech. Their throat is an open sepulcher. 
With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp are under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. We are depraved in speech. And I find it interesting, the, the illustration that's used here, the example that's used here. Do you know of anything that is more repulsive to the, no, to the nostrils than the smell of decaying flesh? Is there anything? I don't think there is. Decaying flesh is repulsive to, the, to your sense of smell. And I believe the Scripture is telling us that what comes out of the mouth of the person who is driven by the flesh, responding out of the flesh, making statements out of the flesh, is a stench in the nostrils of God. And that includes my throat and my mouth. When there's deception, it's a stench in the nostril of God. It's like the poison of asp is under their lips. Oh, our Sunday school lesson today talked about uh, as, as uh, Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness. Why did Moses lift the serpent up in the wilderness? Because the poison of asp were going through the veins of the Israelite people and they were dying. So the poison of asp brings death and decay. Even people who don't die from snake bites may have muscle damage from the decay, from the poison within. And this is the language we're seeing here as it relates to our, uh, to our speech. Full of cursing and bitterness. Verses 15 through 18 concludes this little portion and says we're also depraved in conduct. We're depraved in character. We're depraved in speech and we're depraved in conduct, verse 15. And her feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And that is verses 15 through 18. And I've wondered about that. What's that mean, their feet are, sw are swift to shed blood? Well, let's consider Proverbs 12. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. I have it in my notes. I'll just go ahead and read it. Proverbs 12. Proverbs 6, beginning at verse 12, it says, A naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. So it's dealing with the, the depravity of our speech. He winketh with his eyes. He's using body parts to deceive. He speaketh with his feet. He teacheth with his fingers. The frowardness in his heart is in his heart. He deviseth mischief, mischief continually. He soweth discord. Discord. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly, suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, even seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. All these things are despicable to God. This is all part of the things that that wafe up to heaven as a stench to the nostrils of God, and we are all guilty. We are all guilty. You say, well, I've, I've never murdered anyone. What does John say? John says, he who doesn't love his brother is a murderer, and there's no truth in him. So we look at this thing, and we realize we're all guilty. 
And now we come to verse 19. And we know that whatso things soever the law saith, it saith unto them that are under the law, that every mouth be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. We come to this portion of this passage, of this chapter 3, and it's discouraging. It's depressing. We're looking at this and saying, yes, that's who we are outside of Jesus Christ. And we're seeing that there's, there's just an impossibility for us to do anything about it on our own. We can't change it on our own. Verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And we're left hanging with a death sentence. There's nothing we can do about it. No flesh can be justified in his sight, the fallen sinful nature of the flesh that we're they're operating out of. And the law just brought us to knowledge of that sin. And uh, chapter 7 will help us understand that. And chapter 7 said there was a time when I was free. But then the law came and the knowledge of wrong came and I died. We're dead now spiritually dead because we know the difference between right and wrong and there's nothing we can do about it in and of ourselves. A wonderful word in the Word of God. It's three letters, but, B-U-T. Verse 21, we turn the corner. We see the solution for the, for the dilemma that we find ourselves in. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So what's he talking about now? We're getting ready to open up and consider something new and something different that we haven't looked at here in the first half of chapter 3. It's a righteousness that, that comes to us apart from keeping the law. It's something that the law elude, the prophets prophesied about. It's something the prophets long to, to enter into and to understand better. They spoke on it, but I believe they long to understand better what they spoke of. And don't we all do that in the Word of God, to understand better what we speak of. First Peter chapter 1, and I'll begin at verse 8. Whom having not seen ye love, and whom now Ye see him, not yet believing, rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And now it's talking about the Old Testament prophets, as I've just referred to. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ, which is in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand, the sufferings of Christ, and what else? the glory that should follow. Praise God. The glory that should follow in this righteousness that comes by faith. Unto whom was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us did they minister things which are now reported to you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. And what should be our response? Verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Wherefore, or because of, and in light of, gird up the loins of your mind. Be prepared for action. Get busy. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that was brought into us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This little verse we're looking at that began with but is a revelation in this passage of the hope to be gotten out 
of the miry pit that we are in, in the deeds of the flesh, in our attempts to keep the law apart from faith in Jesus Christ. But now righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Where does this righteousness come from? Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This righteousness is the gift of grace from God. And it comes into our lives through faith in Jesus' finished work. And it's equal to everyone. God is an equal opportunity God. Jesus Christ is an equal opportunity Savior. And whether we be Jew or Gentile, barbarian, slave, free, whatever, we all come to God with the same opportunity to place our faith in Jesus Christ and to be set free from the bondage of sin and death that we could not overcome through the law, through keeping the law. We have all sinned, verse 23, past tense. Everyone, we've all sinned. And we all continue to come short of the glory of God, present tense. Not that we live in defeat, and that's, that's chapter 8. Not that we live in defeat, but John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We still fall short of the glory of God. But praise God for grace and for repentance and for the goodness of God that we live in victory and not in that miry pit of trying to keep the law outside of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful verse in light of what we're looking at? Being justified freely, fully, completely in God through the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 25 talks about how this took place. Whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. I've enjoyed studying this verse. The word translated propitiation here is only used twice in the entire Bible. Some translations translate it atonement or something different, but I enjoyed studying what the word, where it's used another time. I invite you to turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is the only other place that the Greek word translated propitiation is used. And it's used in Hebrews 9 and verse 5. And over it the cherubims of the glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. The word propitiation is also translated mercy seat. And I'd like for us to think about what took place at the mercy seat, the cover of the Ark of Covenant, the, the, in the Holy of Holies, the innermost and most sacred part of the temple that only the high priest could go in once a year and only after he did cleansing and ritual. 
to take in and to intercede for the sins of the people. Let's read this. And over it the cherubim of the glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when those things were thus ordained, the priest went always in the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once a year, and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest was of all not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still abiding. Only the high priest could go in, and he had to go in with blood of atonement, or he would lose his life as well. But the way wasn't open to everyone else, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. You see, it could, it could cover sin, but the conscience was never cleared because the sin wasn't taken away, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings, washings and carnal ordinances imposed upon them until the time of Reformation. It was just a ritual they went through. They were looking forward to something better, something they didn't fully understand, but they'd placed their faith in. And now we have that beautiful little three-letter word again in verse 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, and notice how he went into the Holy of Holies. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ash of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth unto the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's just a beautiful passage of Scripture. That Jesus went in there with his own blood. Well, he, he offered his own blood. There's debate whether he entered in or not. That's not the subject today. But through his own blood which he shed, he provided the perpetuation for our sins. And he did it so that we could now be set free from the dead works of keeping the law to serve the living God through the living spirit that's within us. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament or the New Covenant that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First test Testament or the Old Covenant which were called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Praise God. We went from this terrible pit we were looking at with no way to get out, and we were there just sending up a stench to the nostrils of God, to now being willing and able to serve God in a new way and to be set free from all of that and have the Spirit of God dwell within us and to exchange all that old sin and that debauchery for the Spirit of God and peace and love and joy and the fruit of the Spirit and, and on and on if we walk in the Spirit, if we keep in step with the Spirit as we continue on with that, that will be the testimony of our lives. Now verse 26, 
to declare, I say, that this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of them which believe in Jesus. Now we see the justice of God clearly. You know, there was a question about the justice of God back in the beginning of this chapter, but now it's, Paul is revealing it to us more clearly. We are all held guilty before God until we are justified through faith in His provision for our lost condition, the work of Jesus Christ. We come here to verse 27 now, and he asks us another question. Paul gives us a truth, he asks us a question. He gives us a truth, he asks us a question. And now he asks us a question that we're considering. As we have had the blessing of, of godly heritage in our, in our genealogy, verse 27, where is boasting then? What do we have to boast about? What do we have to lift ourselves up about? What do we have to be proud of? Nothing. It is excluded by the law of works, nay, but by the law of faith. You see, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how many generations back that we can point to and say, oh, our ancestors believed in Jesus Christ. Our ancestors were Anabaptists. Our ancestors were whatever. God doesn't have any grandchildren unless we express and place our faith in the work of Jesus Christ. We're just as lost as the man on the street that doesn't even have any idea if there's any religious background at all in his family. There's no difference. We have an advantage, but it doesn't lessen, it increases our responsibility before God. There's no room for boasting. It is only God's provision that sets us free regardless of who we are or where we came from. Now verses 28 and 29 as we begin to wrap this up. Therefore we conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? And I'll stop reading there. And I've already said several times, everyone has equal opportunity before God. Here's my personal conclusion in studying this chapter, as it also ties in with the rest of the book and the rest of, of Scripture. This is what came to my heart as I studied. God is just in judging sin. God is just in judging sin because He is also the God who offers justification to all mankind through his provision for our sins. You see, they were asking the question, they were challenging, is God just to judge sin when we open this chapter? And at the end, Paul has explained to us why he is just. And this is what I understood, and please help me if I'm misunderstanding. I'm, I invite interaction as we study this book. God is just in judging sin because he is also the God who offers justification to all mankind through His provision for our sins, the atoning work of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And now we circle all the way around back to where we started in verse 31. We're all the way back to the law. Do we make the law void through our faith? Do the godly directives that God set up 
throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, as he continued to reveal himself in greater and greater measure to mankind. Does faith then nullify all the righteous requirements in the law? And Paul says again, well, the translator says again, God forbid, where that's exactly what he said it, we don't know. But the Scripture says again, not at all, no way, God forbid. To a life of faith, we actually establish or we confirm the fact that God's law is right and righteous. And we don't live it out in perfection, but we can live in victory. And through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, we can leave a testimony of righteousness to all who observe, and the name of God is not blasphemed. Rather, the name of God is sought after when people see us living not in that old life, not, not responding out of the flesh, not reacting out of the flesh, not, not being back in that old life, but a life that is filled with the Spirit of God. And a life that is filled with the Spirit of God will also be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in ever-abounding measure. And as that is observed, rather than the name of God being blasphemed, people who do not know God will be drawn to want to know who is this God? Who has changed your life? Who has made the difference? Who has drawn you out of the miry pit, brought your feet out of the clay, and give you life and give you joy? And may that be our testimony.